we're back with the Lords of Nature edition of the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow. And I'm Peter Momsen, Editor of the Plow Quarterly. Today we'll be talking about a piece in the most recent issue of Plow, the Nature Issue, which takes a look at the ethical and religious implications of medical technologies that allow us to mold our bodies to our desires. Should people be able to claim absolute lordship over their bodies? Then we'll be talking with Amish farmer John Kempf, who's emerged as an advocate for regenerative agricultural practices. And just to remind listeners, if you have questions you'd like us to discuss in the final episode of this podcast series, let us know on Twitter using the hashtag Book of Creatures. Or if you don't do Twitter, send us an email at info at plow.com. So let's dive into this article by Potter Edmund Waldstein, a longtime Plow contributor and monk at the Stift Heiligenkreuz Monastery in Austria. Um, Susanna, this is one of the more philosophically heavy pieces in the issue, but it's very readable. Yeah, he, um, Potter Evan does, he's one of our two kind of non-boring Thomists who we kind of re- repeatedly ask to do the deep philosophical pieces. What do you think the other Thomists think when you say the two non-boring Thomists? I'm not saying that there are only two non-boring Thomists. I'm just saying that those two are non-boring Thomists. So the question Potter Edmund poses is, new medical technologies promise to let us mold our bodies at will. Should we use them? And he uh, starts with two examples from the news recently. One is uh, the example of a Chinese biophysicist who, in 2019, uh, Ashley Jean edited two twin babies to make them resistant to the HIV virus using CRISPR technology. And then he uh, uses another example of a surgeon in Italy who claimed to be able or prepared to perform a head transplant. Um, a, A somewhat grisly example, which may not be actually technologically possible. Uh, We don't know that. But as an example, it does kind of usefully help pose a question together with the CRISPR gene editing example. Should we just be able to switch out parts of our bodies or switch out genes or make our kids different so that they're, you know, either better or kind of more resistant and healthy? And I'm not sure, you know, in this podcast, Susanna, what do we want to focus on? Because there's so many things that you could focus on. I know that to me, um, part of this piece and the necessity of kind of doing the genealogy mm-hmm. behind some of these modern moves um, to of radical lordship over the human bodies has has to do with a, a, a sort of long development, at least in Western society, right? Yeah, and he does this. He does this kind of long intellectual genealogy um, of a kind of you know, I don't know, Alistair McIntyre style thing. Um, but it actually Descartes. Descartes, from Descartes to the Romantic, the romantic reaction. reaction. Yeah, exactly. Um, but if you're not interested in Descartes, the Romantic re- Reaction, don't tune out now because <laughs> because actually this this comes down to some stuff that's a lot more intuitive. Like, why do we think it's a bad thing that blue whales might go extinct? Or why do we think it's there's something wrong with it if, um, I don't know, you know, an elephant is stuck in the Bronx Zoo with no other elephants around just on a concrete pad all day? It's a question of what are, whether there is such a thing as nature... <laughs> And whether there are such a thing, there are such things as um, the natures of creatures, and this is the creatures issue. And so this is really getting at the question of human nature. Um, and at the end of this piece, he kind of ends in a place where I think we kind of want to begin, which is with this quote from uh, Josef Ratzinger. Josef Ratzinger, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, and to, to the German Bundestag in 2011. And he was speaking, you know, the, the German parliament, of course, has a pretty strong Green Party element who have rightly and in admirable ways, actually, advocated for ecological con- consciousness mm-hmm. with great success. And with climate change looming, this is a topic that can't just be waved away. And the Pope, and I think it would be good to read this, the yeah. Pope applauded their efforts to protect nature to protect in Christian terms creation 
and, and to see the inherent dignity of it. But he kind of asked them to extend the same line of thinking to human beings. So if uh, nature ought to be respected, then perhaps human beings should be too. And their nature should be better to hear the Pope's own words. Why don't you do it? I would like to underline a point that seems to me to be neglected. Today is in the past. There is also an ecology of man. Man, too, has a nature that he must respect and that he cannot manipulate at will. Man is not merely self-creating freedom. Man does not create himself. He is intellect and will, but he is also nature. And his will is rightly ordered if he respects his nature, listens to it, and accepts himself for who he is as one who did not create himself. In this way and in no other is true human freedom fulfilled. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this, and obviously there's been a lot of reflection in you know, particularly Catholic theological circles. Most recently, um, Pope Francis's Laudato Si encyclical expanded on some of these insights. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about this in layperson's terms. Uh, let's go back to the origins of the modern ecological movement. So let's say Rachel Carson's mm -hmm. The Silent Spring, where she raised people's consciousness of the effects of pesticides mm -hmm. on birds. Mm -hmm. And there was this kind of intuitive sense across the country that resulted in all kinds of protection, eventually the Endangered Species Act, to protect birds. Uh, for instance, bald eagles, right? When I was a kid, to see a bald eagle in the Hudson Valley was like this once-in-a-lifetime thing. Yeah. I remember seeing my first bald eagle when I was probably in fourth grade mm -hmm. and thinking that I might never see a bald eagle again. Yeah. Now, when I go striped bass f fishing on the Hudson, I see several bald eagles every time in just like a two, three-hour you know, fishing s spot. So she was great. But why was that so powerful? Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, it was because people felt, you know, it's really, really bad for bald eagles to go extinct and for all these other birds to go extinct for there to be a silent spring with no songbirds we really think that there's an intrinsic value in songbirds even mm -hmm. if that doesn't show up in G gdp or anything else and then also i think the other thing to think about is the way that we've started to think about um agriculture and uh, you know humane animal keeping practices and, and the problems with factory farms. It's not just that it's good for animals not to go extinct, but it's also good for animals to be able to be themselves and to have what they need in order to thrive. And it's not even just a matter of are they suffering, right? So right. some conventional farmers will say, well, pigs actually prefer to be indoors, right, where it's yeah. heated rather than out on a pasture where it's cold and potentially wet. Um, but we, there's a gradual growing recognition that a pig really needs to be allowed to be a pig. It needs yeah. to be able to root around. It shouldn't just be on a concrete pad in close confinement, even if supposedly the pig is, being, is, yeah. is, is comfortable being a couch potato pig full of antibiotics. And we have a great piece in one of our earlier issues, by the way, with uh, a pig farmer, Joel Salatin. And we'll be talking with another farmer in a few minutes. And, and I think that like, we intuitively feel this with ourselves too. Like there is something, as much as I was, we were talking over lunch about how much I love Twitter and how I think it's an act of good in the world. Um, but we do intuitively feel that like being inside on social media all day, even if we like want to be or it's comfortable emotionally and physically, that's not being fully human. Like we need to, the, the kind of creature that humans are is the kind of creature that kind of needs to go out and play with dogs. Right, or plant a garden. Or plant a garden. Or build something. Yeah. Or whatever it might be. So the, Pope Benedict here talks about that a little. You know, what is that ecology of man? What, what does it mean to respect human beings as part of nature, right? And, and the irony is, okay, so I think we need to acknowledge up front that a lot of people are a little uncomfortable about this discussion, although it sounds so high-minded and philosophical, because inevitably it impinges on some pretty hot-button culture worry things. Issues. And we do not want to do that. <laughs> that is not our kind of like, that's not our MO here at Plow. We're not kind of culture war people. But it is important because, you know, those issues do matter. It's not like they don't matter. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can't really persuade people across some of those d divides, but I think what we, we can do is 
come to a respect for human nature, no matter what where you land on stuff like, you know, uh, the roles of men and women, biological differences, gender theory, transgender. Uh, those are that's one set of issues. Another set of issues might be, you know, assisted suicide, or as as Potter Edmund points out, um, gene editing. Right. right? Um, these are all hot button issues that people can easily get passionate about. Yeah and it obscures talking about things that we might actually agree on. Right. So, since we're peace-loving Anabaptists, I am, and you're a peace-loving... I'm a peace-loving Anglican. Yeah. Why don't we at least start by talking about some things we could agree on? Like, yeah. what, what is the natural human habitat? What is yeah. a natural human life? What is good for human beings? What makes human beings flourish? Just like we want the elephant in the Bronx Zoo to flourish. Right. And we want the blue whales to flourish and want the bald eagles to flourish. I'm not sure I want, like, deer ticks to flourish. I don't want deer ticks to flourish. But we want there to be some deer ticks because they probably do play a role. They're just playing too big a role right yeah. now. And I think one aspect of this that, for instance, a lot of people could agree on is human beings are a species that recreates itself. So you need fathers and mothers mm -hmm. and kids mm -hmm. being raised happily mm -hmm. uh, with parents who are able to take care of them. So yeah. that's a whole bunch of economic questions uh, that gets down into how do you support families? Mm -hmm. How do you allow parents to spend time raising the next generation? Mm -hmm. In other words, not so driven by their jobs and careers mm -hmm. that they don't have adequate time to be good parents, which yeah. is really, from a nature point of view, really the most important thing that a parent can be is to be a good parent. Yeah. Not that everyone has to be parents, of course. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, both kind of like from a Christian perspective and from a, like there, there is, there is something more to us than just being parts of nature. Um, but that doesn't mean that w the nature part is obviated. And the other aspect to this is that it's true. And he talks about this a bunch in the piece that part of human nature is a kind of like cooperation in our own self-making. And it's also the case that like, we don't live, you know, <laughs> Man is by nature a political animal, an animal that lives in the polis. And so we live in cities, like many of us do, and that is also kind of part of our nature. Um, but even in, in those terms, so it's not that technology is bad, it's not that like we all need to be living on you know, rural communes in upstate New York. Some of us can be living in New York City. But even in, in terms of living in the city, my girl Jane Jacobs talks a lot about the kind of natural ordering of cities. Um, Philip Bess is also great about this, and John Massengale, who everyone should follow on Twitter. Um, there's a sense in which, like, even in our built built environment, even in our art, even in our technology, there are kind of like ways to work with our nature and ways that are kind of seem punishing towards our nature. Um, so, from Let's talk about Jane Jacobs yeah. and urbanism uh, from the point of view of what Pope Benedict said about respecting man's nature. Because I think a lot of people, when they hear this whole eco ecology stuff, they think national parks, they yeah. think about endangered species, they think about the Amazon rainforest, they don't think about cities. Yeah, and so John Massengill, again, is this guy who is very into the walkable city. And there is a, there's a lot of kind of Research, but it's also like you don't need that much research. Like it, it feels good to be in certain kinds of cities, and it feels kind of awful to be in other kinds. And the kinds that it feels good to be in are the kinds that you can kind of walk around, and they're architecturally interesting, and they make you feel welcome, and they, it, it they're not boring, and there's like, um, there's beauty and there's variety, and it doesn't feel like they're built for cars, or like giant mournful robots, um, and that those kinds of cities, um you know, go to lower Manhattan, like that, that's a kind of city that makes you feel human. Mm -hmm. um, even though it's not, you know, being in nature, it's being in a kind of nature that's appropriate to humans. In an earlier episode of this podcast series, Suzanne, you actually mentioned that, you know, kind of one of your first sort of semi-mystical experiences of nature was actually in Manhattan. Yep. Yep. And, you know, I, I love upstate New York. I grew up around New Paltz. I feel probably most at home in, in the country, but I love go going to Manhattan. I always have, and there's just a sense of this is, you know, this is humanity. This really is a symbol of 
kind of fallen symbol, <laughs> obviously, yeah, yeah. of of what we're all aiming for. Uh-huh. You know, the pe- peoples of the world together, people interacting. You know, the the interpersonal reactions you do have, the kind people you do encounter, um, even on the subway, and the sheer variety of humankind is is a remarkable and good thing. Yeah, and. That's what makes me suspicious, even as a guy who does live in a rural commune, you could say, um, of, you know, visions of the human good that just involve withdrawing to the Isle of Innisfree, um, far away from the madding crowds. But the nine bean rows are kind of appealing sometimes. They're great, you know, come back to the nine bean rows. Just have a Manhattan that you can go to, you know, when bean harvest is over. Yeah. There's another um, aspect of, of and, and you know we're just I think we're just teasing things out here, but there's another aspect of respect for human nature, which is how kids are raised. Right. Right. What does your education system look like? Is it an education system that's designed to create a workforce? Right. Or is it an education system that's good for kids? Um, and of course, that's deeply intertwined with mm-hmm. expectations on employees and mm-hmm. whether. There's going to be parents at home uh, when the kiddos come home, mm-hmm. uh, or are those parents going to be required to do unpredictable shift hours? Mm-hmm. Um, are they going to be there for the weekends? Um, are they going to be subject to uh, the demands of their boss via, you know, Slack and Asana and other uh, evil uh, <laughs> Things with which you oppress me. Yeah, well, exactly. Things that we too use here. But we try to avoid, I think, pinging each other at midnight yeah. or, you know, after five. Yeah. Um, because we recognize that we all have friendships and family lives mm-hmm. and, and things that are also important, yeah. right? And that on Sunday, a Sunday should be a yeah. Sunday. I love in this in this regard, I, I, I've just been thinking in terms of the Pope's remarks about the nature of man, um, reading again Freddie DeBurr's book, The Cult of Smart, mm-hmm. um, where he really takes aim at, you know, this very kind of utilitarian view of education as there to produce a bunch of smart workers yeah. rather than human beings. Highly qualified in a very specific semi-technical way. But they've had impoverished childhoods. Mm-hmm. They've sat in classrooms for far too long mm-hmm. um, each day, mm-hmm. far more than they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the fact is that, yeah, there's you know there's a certain percentage of kids who, who may thrive mm-hmm. with a lot of academic challenge and maybe bookworms and, and all of that. But there's actually a whole bunch of kids who aren't that, right? Uh, I mean, particularly a whole bunch of boys at certain ages of their development where sticking them in a classroom and expecting them to behave for six to eight hours a day is just madness yeah and, and talk about something unnatural right <laughs> it's it, it is bizarre to sort of, when you when you sort of start to think about like these are child zoos half the time mm-hmm. these are like these are child zoos yeah 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 Speaking of elephants, but we have yeah. child zoos. Yeah. I mean, okay, one more piece in this uh, issue that everyone should read is Maureen Swinger's um, piece about basically spending her second grade year in the forest. And that just sounds ideal. Anyway. Well, it is ideal. And the thing is that it's, it, it doesn't need to be an ideal. Yeah. And this is where, you know, uh, conservatives love to knock the idea of socialist uh, nirvanas in mm-hmm. Scandinavia and, and yeah, you know, nowhere's nowhere's heaven on this earth right now. Mm-hmm. But there are countries uh-huh. where the school day is actually kind of short, uh-huh. where kids start doing class later mm-hmm. at age seven or even eight. Mm-hmm. They start first grade, where you kind of have your academics done by noon, mm-hmm. and then you go out and do stuff. Uh-huh. Um, this is eminently achievable, and and it's actually just really crazy to me that we try to force kids and in many cases medicate kids mm-hmm. into behaving in environments that kids were not made to yeah succeed. like there's a reason that that it, it's a problem and it's because it's not working with the way that kids are yeah so that's kids How we're going kind of going through our human ecology manifesto yeah. here aren't we yeah I, I think we need so we've to- done kind of the 
Matt Brunig Family Fun Pack. Yeah. And we've done education. Is there anything else yeah, that we can solve right here quickly yeah, in this podcast session? This up. Um, I oh, we've done urbanism too. Urbanism, so, yes. and yeah, so like work. city design, city suburbs. Design. Yeah. I want to do work because so a lot of what we talked about kind of seems to be an implication that leisure is better than work and that leisure is more natural. Mm. Um, and you know, I think that actually the way that we think about work is profoundly unhuman and that there is a way that we can think about work like actual productive economically fruitful you know materially fruitful work that works with human nature and you know there's a lot of indications uh, in this from our tradition there was work before the fall Mm -hmm. work is not the result of the fall um and it seems to me that, like, another thing that we can solve here is how to fix work and how to fix, you know... So how, how do we fix work? I don't know, man. We podcasted this morning, and then I went back to um, have lunch with you and Wilma, and then you went for a walk with your dog, and I went for a wander in mm-hmm. Fox Hill, and then we're podcasting again. And I'm living in, you know, the primitive communist paradise or something like this. <laughs> Well, you know, I do think living within a community mm-hmm. in which we don't own anything and nobody's paid for their work, mm-hmm. I can only say that people naturally do want to work. Mm-hmm. And so I'll stretch back to a year ago when mm-hmm. we had our first COVID lockdowns and we two within the Brudoff kind of stuck with our own families and we couldn't go to work because mm-hmm. nobody quite knew where this COVID thing was going, what was safe to do blah 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 this is the first few weeks and very naturally everybody with their kids mm-hmm. found work to do mm-hmm. um, some people built extensive paths um, through the woods all over the property other people started large gardens our family works on this we have like 450 foot row of raspberries that we tend for the community and you just wanted to do something in the morning there is something you know uh, the theologian and, and former Church of England Bishop uh, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, plow contributor, you know, wrote there's two kind of things that sort of naturally happen when human beings are anywhere, and one is friendship and the other is gardening. Mm-hmm. And I, it's absolutely true. I think so, so much of the, you know, people talk a lot about leisure and we got to give ourselves time off, and I get it, and I also realize, just to be candid, that I don't live under the pressures that, mm-hmm. you know, 99% of people do in terms of having to you know, earn a salary and please their boss um, because they can't really fire me. Like, what are you going to do? I mean, they can give me a different job, but, yeah. you know, I'm still going to be around. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that uh, that people really do want to work and this idea of leisure and just getting away from work and not doing anything is really not so superhuman. Yes, you know, there should be a Sabbath, but on the other six days... You know, people actually want to be up yeah. and doing, yeah. and kids want to be up and doing. Yeah. So here, let's 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 now talk about like the human ecology of like families and families doing projects together and families working together. Because right. I think so. But we've talked about the sounds of, to, to many people just like again like this sort of neo agrarian throwback, yeah. right? And yet, it's the most natural thing in the world. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think we've also talked about a lot about um, kind of ways that individuals can thrive in mm-hmm. in our you know gigantic solution to all the world's problems that we're going through here. But um, another way to you know thing to focus on is the friendship part and the family part, where like we are naturally we are social creatures, we are political animals, and um, that means that we need to be with each other in community experiencing a common good in order to be fully human. Like, if we're not doing that, we can be, you know, have the best projects going in the world. We can, like, have a garden. Um, And obviously there are some people who are called to be, you know, anchorites and stuff and hermits. But in general... Which is a form of work, though, too, because they're they're praying. Yeah. But, and it's a form of social work because they're praying with the saints in heaven and with the angels, etc., but um, in general, we need to be part of our human nature is being in community and being um, and, and loving each other. Like it's not natural for us not to love each other um, and like each other, too, I think. So to get to, to some of the more contentious issues, that's why I'm often so suspicious of attempts to solve things like 
oh, well, you know, take conservative evangelical Christianity. There's this ongoing, you know, debate between complementarians and egalitarians Mm -hmm. in terms of men's and women's role. And it seems to me so often the premises are all wrong. Yeah. Um, That if we were a community of brothers and sisters where people were allowed to be themselves, which Mm -hmm. also involves, you know, being created male or being created female, and that can vary from individual to individual, and yet there are certain commonalities, Mm -hmm. you know, that, I mean, it it seems almost silly to say these things. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you kind of don't need to worry so much about solving theoretical issues because people are just going to kind of be who they are. Um, And they're going to flourish being who they are, and uh, you don't need to kind of build a whole set of procedures to Mm -hmm. ensure that you know, or a whole ideology about whole it. Whole ideology about it. Yeah. You know, you do need to make sure that you really love people and take care of them, and that you know people are able to flourish. So, I think there's just in this little paragraph from Benedict, and you really should read, uh, dear dear listeners, uh, read Potter Edmonds' piece. There's so much more that Ashley ought to be teased out. Mm-hmm. We mentioned Laudato Si, Pope Francis' encyclical, which is actually, you know, quite a long document and gets into (laughs) all kinds of things. But, and I'm not criticizing the document at all. I think it's actually really wonderful. But I think there's actually so much more here that can't be solved. It needs to all be solved together. The economic, the social, the built environment, the educational system. The way that we relate to each other, you know, between the ages and between the generations, between the sexes, mm-hmm. um, and it's really only then, uh, up till up till you've kind of worked toward that, you're kind of shadow boxing over yeah. some of these more contentious issues. Which is not to say that like we need to like pass the family fun pack before we can like plant a garden. Like no. it, it, it's there are ways to start being human, more thoroughly human even without a perfect society. Yeah, and you can have a family fun pack on a local level. Like a, a, a church could make work to make sure that its members, you know, to the extent that we really love one another as ourselves, would make work to make sure that its members are able to flourish and families are able to flourish. Hashtag the Bruderhof. Sorry. Well, you know, there's many examples yeah. of it, and, and it takes all kinds of different forms. I mean, we've talked about some of the different ones on this podcast, Susanna, whether it's Casa de Verdera in Brazil, um, Pilsen Community in England. Uh, the, the list isn't endless, but it does go on. Mm-hmm. And there's also just parish communities yeah. that are quite intentional about looking after each other. Yeah. So I guess this is, whole, you know... a can sound like one big game of imagine, but it's eminently practical. Go out, like plant, plant. I don't know, plant like a herb box on your on your windowsill or something. Start somewhere. Start somewhere with meat rabbits. Start, man. We're back to meat rabbits. So we're going to be true to human nature, uh-huh. and this uh, article of. Potter Edmonds actually ties into, you know, implicitly at least, a host of other stuff that we published in previous issues, which we should probably drop into the notes. We mentioned Joel Salatin's piece, mm-hmm. um, a series of pieces by Claudio Oliver. Probably one of the couple of pieces from the Cities issue. Exactly. And with Leo Labresco's two pieces with us yeah, that we've yeah, also yeah. talked about. So welcome to the podcast, John Kempf. John Kempf is a Amish farmer in Ohio, and he has a consulting firm, Advancing Eco-Agriculture. Your project, John, is to advance regenerative agriculture, so agriculture that heals the land and creates healthy food. Is that a kind of fair definition of regenerative agriculture, or or what is that thing? Regenerative agriculture, what is that thing? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, (laughs) Regenerative, that phrase means many different things to different people at this moment in time. It's not well-defined. Um, people are attempting to come up with definitions, and uh, I hope it takes 20 years to come up with a definition or perhaps that it's never completely defined. Because from my perspective, 
the the process of regeneration is exactly that it's a process it's a journey and in our with our intention and the pathway of developing a an agriculture that regenerates the landscape that regenerates soil health and plant health and livestock health and ultimately human health as well as economic health that is going to be a journey and we need to acknowledge and recognize that the moment we begin taking the first steps, we have already begun the process of regeneration, even though we have not yet arrived. And this perspective, I think, is almost inherently uh, not in alignment with the idea of a certain standard or a certain certification to say that farmer A is regenerative and farmer B is not. And this, not only is this not really in alignment with having a standard, but also uh, it necessarily creates an included group and an excluded group, which is not conducive to creating the change that we want to see in the world. We need to be inclusive of everyone who is just beginning to take the very early steps and the very first steps and not to unnecessarily alienate people who are just beginning to become more open-minded, perhaps. I have uh, my brothers-in-law are big corn and soybean farmers in South Dakota. And I think would be glad to hear that, John. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, I think that's, that's one thing I find so fascinating about your work and the whole regenerative approach. Uh, There is easily this kind of dualism uh, and hostility almost, you know, the good uh, organic farmers who are tending the earth and the bad GMO and uh, Monsanto using farmers who, who are not. And of course, you know, it's, it's really uh, tough then to convert people over the line. You, you create camps. I'd like to get into that a little more later, but would you just at the beginning here, John, tell us why we need regenerative agriculture? I think, you know, many of our listeners will be familiar with Plow's interests sort of in ecology and, and, and good ways of farming, but may not understand just what's at stake in terms of soil health, what's kind of happening uh, with the use of chemicals and the use of antibiotics and why the way we're farming right now uh, doesn't seem to be a good path forward. Is it really the case that people don't really understand that our current level of system of agriculture is a problem? I'm a Manhattanite. I, I think that a lot of people just are oblivious. Like it's not, they, they might have a sense that like, I mean, obviously factory farming is bad. There's the, there's a sense that something's gone wrong, but I think that people really generally, like genuinely do have very little detailed knowledge of like what's gone wrong with the soil or you like, I think whole foods is tends yeah. to be sort of good, but they're not quite sure. why. Yeah. And like, how is that related to like, is that, is this about healthy food? Is this about organic? Like what is What's gone wrong? Like, what what's gone wrong with the soil is kind of a big, good question. How did how did we get here? Why is it not a great idea to continue on this path? That's interesting. I suppose um, I get so deeply immersed in the system and the work that we do every day that it's uh, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that many people are not closely connected to agriculture today. But um, the the simple summary. Well, let me let me say it this way. Let's look at human health and what has happened with human health over the course of the last six or so decades as the ultimate expression of the relative health of agriculture. With human health, we are now experiencing this epidemic of degenerative illnesses, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, cancer, etc., to the point where uh, we now have Uh, the majority of the adult population experiencing one or several of these degenerative illnesses in their lifetime. 50% of the adult population is expected to have cancer in their lifetime. So we have these appalling statistics about our general state of disease. And this general state of disease is in many ways, a, a the kind of the ultimate end conclusion, the end manifestation of the state of our agricultural health and the state of our soil. And the, the reason this for this continuum is because the degree of soil health determines the degree of plant health, which determines the degree of livestock and animal health. And 
all of those contribute to our personal health. So there certainly are other contributing factors as well. Um, our water quality, which is also influenced by agriculture, our air quality, which is uh, influenced by pollutants and so forth. So it's not exclusively agriculture. And yet agriculture, if we believe the mantra that we are what we eat, agriculture is a significant factor in our general collective state of public health. And so within, so that, that's one perspective on why we need to have a different agricultural model from a very 30,000 foot view, very high level view. But then when we look at it more closely, more granularly, directly on the ground, we see that we have a form of a system of agriculture today that actually it radically and rapidly degrades soil health. And it degrades the very foundation upon which our food production is based. So, and uh, I'll use one convenient statistic. The, in the state of Iowa, which is some of the richest topsoil in the world from the Great Plains grassland where the topsoil was 10 to 14 feet deep. Um, there's only a few places in the world that have the rich topsoil that is in the Corn Belt Midwest uh, centered around Iowa. The state of Iowa loses two pounds of topsoil down the Mississippi River for every pound of corn produced. The obvious question becomes, how long can we sustain that cycle? And the answer is not very long. It's a question of decades or perhaps at the very most centuries. It's not a, it's not a question that we can continue that level of degradation in our agricultural landscapes, our agricultural production systems, and expect to continue to produce food into the future for our future generations. The reality is when we look at this land that we are here to steward from a stewardship perspective and from the perspective perhaps of indigenous agriculturists, we are borrowing from future generations. And at this moment, historically for the last 70 years or so, um, we have been borrowing at an unsustainable rate and it's time to begin paying back. And that is why we need a regenerative agriculture. Let's talk about uh, the details of that a little more, John. So what are the practices that, you know, contribute to this, you know, robbing from future generations? And what are the ways to get away from those that you're developing and, and working on? Well, agriculture inherently is a very uh, multifaceted system. There's lots of different moving pieces and parts. And um, it's, it's difficult to, for, for me to give a very simplistic answer that is all encompassing. Uh, it, can't, it can't be both of those things at the same time. But uh, I would say very simply, or as simply as I can, that we have an agriculture today that um, one of the three of the large contributing factors to rapid degradation are excessive tillage, where the soil is tilled and is now, uh, for lack of a, a, the right term is not soluble, but it is, um, it can be carried by water. We have destroyed soil aggregate structure and the soil is now erodible. So it can be eroded by wind and water and be lost down the Mississippi River, which is, uh, and other rivers, which is exactly what is happening in very large um, volumes. In addition to tillage, we also have uh, two other foundational challenges, which is the overuse of uh, synthesized or mined fertilizers and the intense use of pesticide applications. The combination of those three practices uh, has significantly degraded our soil health and uh, every civilization in the millennia before us who has used these types of practices has ended up destroying their soil and resulting in the destruction of that civilization. And if we continue down that path, we should not expect to get any different results. Can you talk a little bit about your story and how you got inter interested in this? And you talk in the interview a little bit about a kind of eureka moment that happened with the uh, powdery mildew. Yes, I can describe that a little bit. And I should also, uh, to, to finish up on my previous comment, um, it's, it's not meant to, I'm, I'm not intending or attempting to scare people or to provide a terrifying perspective. I think it is reality. We need to look at reality from a very, with a very uh, uh, dispassionate view, if you will. 
And uh, I actually believe that there is tremendous hope today because we are seeing the challenges that have developed over the last 70 plus years with our, uh, since the green revolution with the, the adoption of all these different technologies. And there is a lot of hope because we are with this recognition comes the desire to change. And we are now developing, we collectively are now developing the tools and technologies to change this and to have a very different agricultural model in the near future, if we want that to be the case so that we do not end up destroying civilization. So um, to, to respond to your question, my personal story, I grew up on a family fruit and vegetable farm where we were using very intense pesticide applications. Uh, we were the first people in the region to try the newest, latest and greatest pesticides. And over a 10 year period, um, we observed this gradual intensification where the more insecticides and fungicides that we applied, the worse the insect problems and the disease problems became. It was this very vicious cycle of the more, the more pesticides you applied, the bigger the problems became and the more difficult they were to control. And looking at this now in, in hindsight with what I've learned in the uh, intervening 15 or 20 years, um, it soon becomes very obvious that these chemical quote unquote solutions are actually contributing to the problem. They are actually creating a diseased state of soil health and they're amplifying plant disease and predisposing them to future diseases. So when uh, with these intense pesticide applications, we were seeing uh, ever more increasing disease pressure and insect pressure until the early 2000s, 2002, three and four, we had a three year period in which we lost greater than 70% of the crops that we were growing to a number of different insects and diseases that we were not successful in managing with pesticide applications. And we, in 2004, the third year of that three year period, we began renting a field from a neighboring farm that bordered right up against one of our own fields. And we planted crops across the field border. Um, so we planted out towards the road where everyone could see it driving by. We planted this field into cantaloupe. At harvest time, the old soil that had a prior decade of pesticide applications had 80% of the cantaloupe leaves infected with powdery mildew. And on the new soil, there was no powdery mildew. There was not 5% or 10%, there was zero. There was this sharp knife line right down through the center of the field where the former field boundary had been. And this clear delineation where on one side you had plants that were healthy, on the other side you had plants that were resistant. And this was the same variety, had been managed the same way, but we got two completely different outcomes. In fact, it was so pronounced that there were healthy vines moving or intertwining with the unhealthy vines right on the field edge. And I wanted to know what are the differences between these two plants? What allows one plant to be resistant to powdery mildew when the next plant two feet away is susceptible? And what I learned over the next several years is that uh, in, a, in its simplest essence is that plants have an immune system much the same way that we do. We know that each of us have our own immune systems but they don't all work equally well. Some people become ill very easily and others not at all and, or very seldom. And the difference between those two is how well their immune system is supported with their microbiome and with their mineral nutrition. And the same concept also holds true for plants. Well, that's, that's really fascinating. And, you know, when in hearing that, I think a lot of people will nod along, John. Um, and yet there's fixated in a lot of people's minds, this idea that organic agriculture or natural or sustainable or regenerative uh, is sort of a, a kind of heppy thing involving small one to two acre plots with intense uh, labor inputs and that it's just not scalable uh, to, for instance, our entire nation's agriculture. Uh, what do you think about that? Because you obviously work with some large scale growers. I think, um, yes, we do work with large scale growers. I mean, we work with a we work with growers on a scale of tens of thousands of acres and thousands of acres and hundreds of acres. And, and even uh, we work with growers that have as little as less than an acre and that 
have revenue in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per acre. Um, so there's, it is appropriate for all kinds of scales. It is appropriate for large scale. Um, yes, it is more management intensive and that I actually, I used to say that it's more management intensive and perhaps in some ways it is, but um, the key difference I would suggest it is, is that it requires proactive management rather than reactive management. Rather than seeking to treat diseases or insects that are present after they arrive, instead we have to seek to prevent them with nutrition management and with microbiome management. So that requires good management or good um, analytics. It requires measuring what's happening and what's going on. And it requires proactive applications to prevent those diseases and insects from ever showing up in the first place. So it is perhaps more intense. There is a greater labor requirement um, and it is scalable. I guess what a lot of people, you know, will have this kind of nagging question though, right? How is what you're describing different from the way great grandpa used to farm, say before World War II? What is different with our, from our historical approach is that we are better understanding the science behind some of the practices that older generations use, previous generations use with cultural management practices, such as cover cropping and uh, um, grazing livestock and crop rotations and so forth. So we're understanding the science behind why some of those practices were effective better because we have better tools today than they did at that time. But there's also significant differences in that we, because of the better tools that we have, particularly the better analytical tools, we are now able to measure plants' nutritional profiles. We're able to measure what is happening in the environment, in the landscape, and effectively predict disease and insect susceptibility well into the future, which um, is very powerful because if we're able to predict disease or insect susceptibility based on nutritional profiles and microbial profiles, that means we also have the knowledge base to prevent those. And this is all knowledge that um, the, the details, the, the fine details of, of how to manage the system effectively is not something that we have had historically. I mean, it is remarkable that just even for human beings with medicine, right? The understanding that the microbiome might play a role in our health is a kind of new recognition that met with a certain amount of opposition from the medical establishment. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually a very similar, very similar perspective in that um, we are now learning the details of how the microbiome influences our immune system, or perhaps I should say how our microbiome is our immune system. And so we, we are better understanding the details and the science of that. And our grandparents knew that if you wanted to boost your immune system, you should consume apple cider vinegar and sauerkraut. So again, the historically, some of the practices were understood, but it wasn't fully understood the details of how they were effective. And we're getting a better and more defined understanding of that with some of the emerging science in both human health and in agriculture. It's a very similar parallel. You mentioned um, the Green Revolution, and I think probably one of the major things that people ask or are asking themselves is, this is the annoying question, is it possible to feed the world on this? Like, is this, is this form of agriculture at its best as productive as um, Norman Borlaug style? Sounds like you have your answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really interesting because I've, I've asked this question any number of times of guests on my podcast, the Regenerative Agriculture Podcast, and there is unanimous agreement between amongst all of the practitioners and the scientists who are deeply engaged in regenerative agriculture that not only can this model of agriculture match the current system's performance, but in real practice every day on many operations for the last couple of decades, it in fact exceeds the performance and the productivity of the mainstream system. And so this, this whole mantra of the need to feed the world is actually, uh, it is not supported by data uh, it's not supported by science. It is simply a marketing mantra of the agribusiness industry, industrial complex 
that um, is used to support the status quo. I mean, look, the world that we live in right now at this moment in time, 2020, the data says that 70% of global food production of the food, the actual food that is consumed by people is produced with 30% of the inputs, 30% of the pesticide and chemical inputs by small scale farmers. That's the data globally by the Food and Agriculture uh, Organization, FAO. And so this, this model of agriculture that we think is ubiquitous is only ubiquitous in the North American sense and in the, in the mechanized and developed world. The majority of the world is still uh, driven by smallholder agriculture and the smallholder agriculture produces the majority of the world's food, greater than 70%. And at the same time, it's using the minority of the inputs. So there is the perfect rebuttal in and of itself of the mantra mm -hmm. that we need synthetic Norman Borlaug style agriculture to feed the world. The evidence doesn't bear that out to be the case. The smallholder economies, of course, employ more people in agriculture than the U.S. does. Um, I believe in 1920, 30% of the American population lived on farms, and now it's uh, 1%. Uh, would turning to agriculture that's more regenerative um, involve, need to involve more of the population in, in agriculture? And, and do, you, do you see that happening? I, I mean, I, I, should, I should add that I think a lot of people would actually love to get more involved in agriculture. And there's, there's signs of, you know, interest, um, the growth of small farms and, and CSAs and so forth. Um, what have you been seeing in, in your work on, in that regard? Well, you asked the question, is it needed? And so to reframe that, is it necessary for more people to become involved in agriculture uh, to adopt these regenerative models? I don't believe it's necessarily true that that needs to be the case. I believe it would be optimal and desirable for more people to become involved because you get better efficiencies from the land and better efficiencies from the local environment and ecosystems when you have closer management and more human involvement. Uh, and there are many people who have uh, agriculture economists, John Eichard, Wendell Berry, and others who have written about some of this phenomena. So I believe that from an ecosystem's perspective, it would be optimal to have more humans on the landscape, but it's not required as such. Earlier in this, this podcast, uh, we were talking about a quote from uh, a British theologian, N.T. Wright, where he said, you know, wherever there's human beings, two things will happen. You'll have friendship and you'll have gardening. And it, it does strike me that there's something uh, about being human, right, that makes people kind of interested in getting their hands dirty, at least many people. I, I think you've remarked on that. There's a quote um, from you that I saw that people have a tremendous inherent desire to have a connection with life and living processes, and that a lot of younger people are also um, attracted to agriculture. I, there's, I have friends down in Brazil who are running an urban agriculture program, and they, they're just having, you know, college-age kids kind of flocking to them, uh, just wanting to, you know, milk goats. Yes. <clears throat> There's a reason that gardening is the number one hobby in the world. And uh, I do believe that there is this deep, perhaps soul level need or desire within all of us to be closely connected to life and to living, living systems. And that's why people want to garden. And um, for young people who want to become involved in agriculture, uh, there is tremendous opportunity and tremendous need right now. I, uh, I receive messages every month, uh, in fact, probably several times a week from farmers who have existing operations that they do not have anyone to take over. And they uh, ask me, do I know someone who can take over these operations? So right now there are not many young people who have the skill set to be able to do that unfortunately so i believe the most valuable thing that young people can have is the skill set and um, there's lots of conversations about uh, the difficulty of accessing land and accessing capital and being able to get started and i personally happen to be of the opinion that 
you don't require access to land to get started. You don't need to own land and you don't need to have large amounts of capital. Uh, you need a small amount, a few thousand dollars, uh, but that's something that should be attainable or within reach by most people. And uh, with that, you can begin leasing a small amount of land and put in, uh, have very low capital requirements and build a mobile farming operation. Joel Salatin speaks about this very effectively in his book, Fields of Farmers. Um, yeah, I love that book. Yeah, I would say very simply, there's, there's tremendous opportunity for young people to become involved in agriculture today. And um, the most valuable thing that you can have is the skill. If you have experience, skill, there are many farmers who want to give you an give you the opportunity, but you have to earn that skill on your own. Seems like um, a conversation about agriculture has to start with the fact that there's a design in the natural world, the, a multitude of processes that follow a specific order. Um, just the relationship between. Um, like what, what the soil is and the relationship between the microbiome and the plants themselves, um, which I, you know, we're only beginning to understand. Um, this does seem like an aspect of the created order and conventional agriculture seems to sort of willfully disregard the fun function of those relationships. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think it is really interesting to me how uh, agriculture as a whole uh, tends to, not universally, but uh, tends to majority be comprised of people who profess to be Christians. And yet our approach to agriculture uh, as Christians has not been to steward, but instead to dominate. Even though we profess that we know to, that we are here to steward God's creation, um, we have taken a very uh, warfare mentality approach of subjugating and dominating natural systems. And um, I, could, I could go on at length to describe why that is a problem, but we could also just say very simply that, you know what, um, Mother Nature bats last. She always has. And any, any civilization who has taken a hubristic approach of dominating and subjugating natural ecosystems for an extended period of time has not survived. And uh, why would we be any different? You said earlier that you actually have tremendous hope. And uh, wh why do you have hope? Uh, why shouldn't I have hope? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you talk to a lot of farmers and we've talked about a lot of problems, but you're obviously actually kind of optimistic about where this is going. I'm very optimistic about where things are going. And, you know, sometimes things need to, um, uh, things need to hit a crisis inflection point before they can rapidly improve. And one of the reasons I'm optimistic is because the, in, in our, in my personal story on the farm that I was growing up on and was managing 15 years ago, uh, we hit the proverbial brick wall things had to become bad enough before we realized that there was in fact a better way to farm. It was hidden. It was not widely known. The information was not as accessible then as, as it is now, but there was a different pathway forward. And uh, one of the reasons I'm hopeful is because we were just earlier at hitting the proverbial brick wall than many other farmers because we were using pesticides more intensely. So today, there is, are a rapidly growing number of farmers who are hitting that proverbial brick wall, and uh, we are now here to uh, offer them a pathway forward and to share the things that we have learned in the last 15 years on how to implement these regenerative agriculture systems. So there is a, uh, look, it's, it's really simple. No, no one has the intent to be harmful. Uh, farmers don't have the intent to harm their soil. It's a very common refrain that we want to leave our soil better for the next generation. And yet uh, we've adopted a model that doesn't deliver that. It leaves the soil worse for the next generation in many cases, but we've been told by our advisors um, 
in academia and in government that that is okay, that this is acceptable because it's the best way that we know to accomplish a certain outcome. Well, there is still the incumbent system is still there, but now there are all kinds of cracks in the armor appearing where there are hundreds of farmers, hundreds of producers around the country saying, hey, we have tried a better way and it works. It's more effective. We're producing higher yields. We have better quality. We are eliminating our inputs. We no longer need fertilizer. We no longer need pesticides. Uh, we no longer are dependent on crop insurance. The, the list kind of goes on and on. So there are enough people raising their hand to be noticed to say, I'm doing something different and I'm more profitable. I'm making more money. I now see a future for my farm for the next generation. And as that momentum continues and as it grows, uh, I believe that, that the majority of younger farmers and older farmers as well will want to move in a different direction where there is hope and opportunity, not the depression that normally surrounds mainstream production commodity agriculture. Thank you, John. This has been fascinating and so glad to have this conversation and will direct any listeners who want to know more to your website in the notes to this podcast and also, of course, to your article in the new issue of Plow. So thanks a lot and all the best with your work and uh, look forward to talking some other time. Have an awesome day and a blessed time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of the Plowcast. Remember to send us your nature questions on Twitter using the hashtag Book of Creatures or email us at info at plow.com. And if you like what we're doing, tell your friends to give us a listen.